Hi, I'm here with Wendella Marsh, Wendy. She is uh, an author. She has family members who are autistic. So we're going to be talking about autism right now. For those that don't know, we're going to get into exactly what it is and the difference in what people might be feeling when having autism and how to really deal with it. So I'm going to turn the time over to Wendy right now. She's going to give you a description of what she is and what she does and all that. Hi, Jason. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, and I, I do love to talk about autism because uh, my late husband and two of my three grown children are autistic. They were all diagnosed later in life. Before I even knew I was living with autistic people, I used to work with uh, young children who were autistic. Uh, so it looked different in late diagnosed adults. So I wasn't aware that I was uh, living with pe with autistic people every day. So when I retired from working in the public schools, I uh, there's two things I wanted to do. I wanted to write a book. I wanted to see a few consulting clients. Writing a book turned into eight books going on nine books, um, which I love writing. And I love my publisher, Future Horizons uh, Inc. The, the ones I'm working on right now are um, a series called Adulting While Autistic. And it's got independent living while autistic, dating while autistic, relating while autistic for couples. Parenting while autistic is coming out December 5th. And I just got the okay to write working while autistic about um, employment. Uh, but my other thing, instead of just doing a few consulting clients, um, I ended up starting a group practice on telehealth just since the pandemic. And I've hired uh, mostly um, neurodivergent or autistic or ADHD uh, clinicians who um, they can diagnose, uh, test and diagnose people for autism and also for ADHD. And we see people all across the country. And I really love the little team that I've gathered together and the work that they do for people who wonder if they might be autistic and they want to know why they might have struggled with social uh, misunderstandings and that kind of thing. And being for older people, would you consider it kind of like a taboo to be diagnosed with autism where you know, it's a hush-hush thing. You don't really want to talk about that, you know, because they brought up one way to, of thinking. You know, uh, that's a very good question because in the past, it was kind of taboo. People used to think that autistic people also had a, like intellectual disability, maybe that they weren't very smart or, you know, that they were violent or something, which I've never known anybody that was <laughs> violent uh, 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 as an autistic adult just in my experience. Um, but now a lot of people are disclosing it. It's no longer, uh, it, when I first started teaching way, way back 40, 50 years ago, uh, there was like one in 10,000. And then they changed the parameters of what it looked like to diagnose it. And more and more people were getting diagnosed. The adults that we work with, when they find out that they've been autistic all along, it really is freeing for many of them. I know for my late husband, David, it was like, what a relief. He thought he was an alien or that he was failing at being human, but he was doing great for somebody with autism. For an autistic guy, he was 
really doing well. So a lot of people are uh, joyful about finding out the answer to why they have always struggled. That doesn't mean they necessarily want to tell everybody. It's a personal decision. Some people immediately tell the world. Some people keep it to themselves, but that's that's kind of up to them. Now, is there a difference in your eyes or your research between autism and savants? Um, some people, I haven't done a lot of, of research, but I do know that some people who are autistic also are savants are very, very intelligent in certain areas. Um, like in the Rain Man, uh, he was not able to function on his own, but he, you know, his his mind, as far as being able to work with numbers, was brilliant. And the real person that that character was based on, Kim Peek, um, he, he was a savant. He wasn't actually autistic, but I think the character in the movie was played as if he was autistic. It's very similar. Most autistic people, they might be smart, but they're not necessarily a savant. That's um, some are some are musical savants or artistic, you know, artistic autistic. Um, and there are actors uh, who are who are autistic, but it doesn't always go hand in hand with being a savant. And you can be a savant without being autistic. Yeah, I believe Kim Peek was said to retain ninety eight percent of what he reads and I know a lot of autistic people can retain a lot of what they read and a lot yeah. of what they hear is that kind of what you research too I have found a lot of people are very strong visual learners and visual thinkers Temple Grandin wrote a book called thinking and pictures she very literally everything that she thinks is a picture so um when she when somebody says, church steeple in her mind there's like a little rolodeck with an image of every single church steeple she's ever seen or seen a picture of uh not just thinking what is the generic term oh a church steeple is something pointed on top of a church she sees every single individual steeple um so she's so visual that when she was a very young child learning language she had trouble telling a cat from a dog because they both had four legs they both had a tail but she finally realized the difference between a cat and a dog is the nose. If you look at the nose of a dog, it's very different from the nose of a cat. And that visual way was for her how to tell, whereas the rest of us don't even know how we know. We just look at it and we say, it's a cat, it's a dog without you know, thinking, how did we decide that? But she had a very visual way to figure that out. Now, off air, you and me were talking about uh, people on the spectrum. You have high functioning, low functioning. But you said something that was very interesting, where you might have somebody that's high functioning, but on bad days, they could be a low functioning. Can you explain why that would happen and what would cause that? Yeah, that is a good question. And that's why a lot of autistic adults don't like those terms. They say, if you call me high functioning, you ignore my needs. But if you call me low functioning, you ignore my strengths and you take away my um, ability to make my own decisions. So those terms are kind of um, not useful for them. But as far as one single person, on one day, they might you know, get up and go to work, cook dinner, do the normal things that anybody does. 
um, and be considered, you know, finger quotes. I can't say the functioning without doing the finger quotes, you know, finger quote, high functioning. But on another day, maybe they got up and their toothpaste was gone and they had to use a different toothpaste and the sensory, you know, they had to use their family members brand. And that's a sensory different and it's unexpected. It's difficult for many autistic people to roll with things and to adjust easily to change. And then maybe they ran out of milk for their cereal. It's kind of like the Alexander and the no good, terrible, bad day, that book, where one thing after another goes on. And sometimes just one thing. It might be a dog barking at a child on the way to school, that they become nonverbal, non-functioning. They just freeze. And that was such a traumatic event for them. Whereas for others of us, we would just go, oh, well, it's just a dog barking. But it might be much more... Uh, serious for someone with without for an, aut an autistic person partly because their sensory awareness is kind of extreme they can really love certain sensory things like visual looking at a lava lamp but they can also be very much um, disturbed by the feeling of tags in their shirt or the smell of a banana or um, eating a crunchy and a smooth food in their mouth at the same time might just be terrible or the sound of silverware scraping against each other makes a sound that can be painful and if some of those sensory events or if there's too much social expectation which is draining and exhausting for them whereas it might be not at all for me but i'm not autistic but those kinds of events usually social or sensory can deplete them so much that it's like one more thing and they could become completely nonverbal and unable to move because and then they would be called low functioning doesn't mean they're not smart and capable it just means in that moment they were overwhelmed now people talk about symptoms of autism i'm going to go through a few okay you tell me you tell me if it's a true symptom or oh. if it's propaganda okay and i'm ready Antisocial. Uh, propaganda. Uh, for many, socialization is difficult. For some, they don't enjoy it, um, but they're not anti it. The, the people that I know, and I've worked with many, many people over the decades. Um, so while it might be tiring for them and they might prefer to be alone sometimes, that doesn't mean that they are antisocial. They're just it's not necessarily their preference. And for some, they really love being social, but it can take a toll and be tiring for them. A lot of them don't like going outside or doing things because they have to be clean, always have to wash their hands, always have to be spotless. Oh, okay. That is some, for some people, there are some of those OCD kind of characteristics, but not for everyone. There are a lot of autistic characteristics and very few people have all of them. But you have to have a certain number of them to be diagnosed as autistic. Um, so some people don't like to go outside. Some people have to wash their hands a lot. But a lot of autistic people don't have those characteristics. How about everything in its place and everything has a place. And if it gets moved or lost, they don't know how to handle it. You know, for a lot of people, if someone else moves their things, it's traumatic. That doesn't mean that they're all neatniks. Some probably are. Some, you know, might be very messy, but they still don't want somebody else 
changing their mess because they know where the things are in their in their messiness. Um, and some people are very neat, um, but it can be uh, difficult when somebody else touches their things. Uh, one one little girl, well, now she's probably a teenager or a woman, but her name is Rosie King, and she was in a, a BBC special about her autism. And she talked about how when she gets dressed to go to school, she has to put on a pair of shoes. Obviously, you have to put on shoes. But then she feels sad for the other shoes because they didn't get to go to school. They were not chosen. They were, you know, rejected and had to stay home. And she felt she used to feel really sad for those shoes. Um, so uh, loving things so much that you give them um you give them personality sometimes, not everybody, but but some people with autism can really enjoy objects as much as they enjoy people. So you consider it a mass like organized chaos? Well, uh, I don't know. I can't get inside their heads. I know some like to be neat and some are not so neat. Uh, sometimes there's a bit of an ADHD in there of setting it down and then forgetting it. And, you know, there's, it's, uh, it's not one of the diagnostic criteria, whether they're neat or not. It's just kind of some are, some aren't. What about routines? Doing the same thing every day, and if you break that routine, they get upset or they might have a low-functioning day? Yeah, uh, that is one that is a diagnostic criteria, a, a preference for a routine. And it, it's often a very strong preference. So that if they're driving to work and there's a, a detour and they have to drive a different way, it might throw off their whole day and they might have a, a bad day uh, and maybe become low functioning. And sometimes they can cope with it, but on the inside, they're like tied in knots, like they've got a lot of anxiety about it. You would never want to throw a surprise birthday party for an autistic person, in my opinion. It would not be appreciated. You know, a bunch of people jumping up out of the dark and yelling at you doesn't sound <laughs> great to most autistic people it would not be appreciated okay what about uh quiet time either wearing headphones or yes. silence you know a lot of people autistic people that i know really rely on good noise canceling headphones sometimes with music sometimes to just block out all the little sounds um for some if they hear a sound and they don't know what it is they're anxious until they can verify that it is. there's no danger. It's just a dripping faucet or it's just the humming of the refrigerator or something or dropping of um, ice cubes in there. Um, so to, to uh, kind of calm down those sounds, if they were noise-canceling headphones, it just helps them relax. Now, I do know a few people that have autism who are really good at music. They can actually look at a sheet of music with no practicing and play it as mm -hmm. good as what music teachers can do. And music teachers have been playing for years, but I know people out there that can just pick up a sheet of music, look at it and play it with no practicing. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of gifts that go along with autism. I mean, that was, that surprised me because uh, he was getting ready to play. I'm like, do you need time to practice? And he goes, nope, I'm all set. He took the music, put it in his briefcase and walked away. 
Wow. Okay. He knows what and, he can do. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask you the questions. What okay. was your first job? My first job, I was uh, teaching in a special ed classroom. So there was like six kids and they all had what we used to call uh, severe language disorders. I recognize now looking back that probably a lot of them, some of them at least were autistic, but back then they didn't, they weren't recognized. And my first year of teaching was the very first year that we were required by law to have IEPs, the Individual Education Program for Special Education. So that was brand new. That's to show how old I am. Uh, it was in the 70s. What was your favorite season? Oh, my favorite season. That's kind of a toss up. I love spring because I really love flowers, but I also love autumn. The leaves are turning. Um, I'd have to say it's a tie between spring and autumn. What is your favorite food? Oh, my favorite food. Well, um, mm, I love little chocolate donuts when they've been in the refrigerator. I say this because I happen to know that there are some little chocolate donuts in my refrigerator at the moment, and I haven't opened them yet. But I also love uh, linguine um, with a cream sauce or with a even with a marinara. So linguine and chocolate donuts. Who was your hero? Uh, um, you know, Annie Sullivan, Helen Keller's teacher, has been a hero of mine. I also love uh, Maya Angelou, the, the poet. What is your favorite dessert? Oh, um, I, I love creme brulee when it's got that hard crack of the, the sugar layer on top. What time do you wake up? About 5.40. What movie do you quote the most? Oh, that's a tough one. It might be Elf. I love Elf. <laughs> are you a night in or are you a night out? A night in, you mean stay home in the evening? I am definitely a night in. Are you a thinker or are you a doer? I like to think I'm both. Um, I think most of my life I've tended more towards thinking, but since I retired and I've been I've been doing things and creating things that I never thought that I would before. Um, so maybe both. Do you learn by watching or do you learn by doing? I like to watch first, but then I know I won't really get it unless I do it. Now, way back when, when my late husband was alive, um, and I was commuting out and gas prices were really high. Now, he was a wonderful man. He always used to fill my tank with gasoline. But we lived in a place where the gas prices were high and I worked in a place where it was cheaper. So I said, I need to learn how to put the gas in the car myself so I can get gasoline out in Madeira. And he would always say, sure, let me show you. And he would always do it for me, but I could get out of the car and watch. And finally, I had to say, you're going to have to let me actually hold the thing and do the thing because I, you know, it's great to watch, but I then need to actually try it before I can feel confident.
And now I live in Oregon where they pump your gas for you. It's my dream. <laughs> when you go swimming, do you tiptoe in the water or do you dive in? These days, I usually watch and admire and wave, but I was always a tiptoer. What is your guilty pleasure? Let's see. Um, beyond the chocolate donuts that I've already mentioned, I do uh, play Animal Crossing. I enjoy the Animal Crossing on my little game thing. What motivates you? Well, partly I love the work I do. Um, I really enjoy writing books and I really enjoy working with the people I work with in my telehealth practice. But also I have three disabled adult children and my goal is, two of them are autistic, the other one has some physical challenges. My goal is to be able to buy some land and build some little small houses for them. Um, and uh, so that keeps me going because um, I, I, I want to work to earn money to be able to do that. But fortunately, the work I'm doing is work I love to do. So I'm, it's not like I'm going to stop as soon as I have enough money to buy land. What is your deepest fear? Oh, that is a good one. I mean, it's a bad one, but it's, it's a tough one. Um, I mean, certainly I'm afraid of like poisonous spiders. Um, I think that's, that just makes sense. <laughs> that's smart. Um, I guess like most, like most parents, um, I don't want to die before I know that my children are on their own and independent and able to take care of themselves. So to, to die before I knew that they were okay, I guess that would be a fear. It's kind of serious. How do you want to be remembered? I think I love the people in my life and I love the things that I do. And I hope that to be remembered for the love uh, is that would be it for me. That's what life is about to be able to love others and accept love and act out of love. On your gravestone, what is something you would want written to let everybody know who did not know you, how you were? You know, I probably don't even want a gravestone. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I'm not going to be in that body anymore. I don't really care what happens to it. I think my children are my living legacy um, because they are good people. You know, I, I like them and I admire them. They're, they're kind and they're funny. And I, they were the people that I spent the pandemic locked up with and they are, you know, I couldn't imagine anybody better to spend that time with. Um, so I think my children are my legacy. And I, this is probably to answer the last question, but what do you care the most about? Oh, my kids. Yeah. <laughs> like any parent, you know. <laughs> now, you're talking with your late husband a lot. Can you can you tell me what really stuck out? Like communication, the sacrifices, what what really made things 
workout for the people that are out there married right now, uh-huh. what kind of help would you give them to make them understand that love does last? Yeah. Love really does last. We, um, we fell in love, you know, just like you do. Uh, and it was kind of a world. We had been friends first for some time, which I think is very important. But once we went on one date, that was it. Within four weeks, we were engaged, you know, within a year we were married. Um, and for the 27 years that we had together, when he was 54, he had a heart attack and died. So we got 27 years together. And um, during that time, we the important thing for us was to remember that the, the person that we loved, the person that we were with, is the one that we are in love with, not the one that may have, you know, burned the toast or left their socks on the floor or, you know, the, the, the details that couples can have arguments about. None of that is important to just remember, this is my person and nothing else. So if there were communication uh, gaffes, you know, because at first we didn't know he was autistic, but that can make communication difficult sometimes. But for us, we kept the love at the front of it and we allowed do-overs. You know, if something happened that um, where there might be ruffled feathers um, to say, okay, let's back up, let's do a do-over. We'll just start from scratch. And um, and if I would have to tell him, this is, you know, this is what would make me happy. Like one time I was, I was angry because um, I was worried about him and the kids because they weren't where they were supposed to be. And I was supposed to meet them and they were supposed to pick me up and they were quite a bit late. And during that time, you know, you get worried and then you get kind of angry. So when he got there, I, you know, when, when I finally had time to talk to him, I said, I am disgruntled. I said, but I am gruntleable. Here is what I need from you. Number one, chocolate. Number two, I want you to send me flowers once a year at my office. Cause I used to work at an office at a school where people were always getting flowers from their husbands. So it's like, I want that too. Um, and then it was like a couple of days later before he could tell me because it was very hard for him to stand up for himself and to explain himself. But finally he told me that he had been his, his, this was early days of cell phones. Um, and he'd been, he didn't have a, char- you know, we didn't have chargers back then in the cars. You just had to hope that your phone didn't die or that there was service. And he couldn't reach me and was trying to find a place where he could because there was some kind of a traffic issue that um, beyond his control. So I was mad at him and it wasn't his fault. He's, he's, he's a good man, but he did buy me flowers for a couple of years until I told him, okay, now I'm done. I don't need any more flowers, but thank you. <laughs> well, Wendy, this has been great, but I'm going to leave the time to you. You can, I would like you to tell people about anything you want. You can talk about autism. You can talk about, your severe language classes. You can talk about whatever you want. This time is yours. Oh, thanks. Oh, thank you, Jason. That's lovely. I guess I want to say, if you know someone who tells you, uh, I'm autistic, I just found out I'm autistic. Um, what I would ask you to do is to not say something like, oh, no, you're not. There's nothing wrong with you. Because that makes it seem like there's something wrong with being autistic. 
So if someone, if one of your friends says, I, I think I'm autistic, just listen, say, oh, tell me more about that. And accept what, you know, believe them. And don't try to say, oh, well, you don't look autistic. Or I knew somebody who had autism and you are not like them. So therefore you can't be autistic. Just listen to them and believe them. And if you are somebody who you think you might be autistic, um, you know, you are wonderful the way you are. I happen to love autistic people. and uh, But I know that that doesn't mean that it's, life is going to be easy because um, being autistic is being in the minority in, in a neurotypical or a neuromajority world. The, the rules are always made by the majority. And most of us uh, historically have been humans that like to look at people's eyeballs when we talk, for instance. So if somebody doesn't look us in the eye, we think, oh, they must be lying or they must be shifty. Whereas many autistic people just don't like to look at somebody's eyeballs. It's like it's weird to them or it's too intimate. And since we hear with our ears, there's no reason somebody has to look at someone's eyeballs. So um, to just be willing to accept someone who might be different and to believe them when they tell you what their truth is. And um, and that's the the key to understanding, I think believing and um you know just giving them the same respect and recognition and love if it's someone that you love that you did before you knew about the autism and one point i do want to add on to that if i can yes autism doesn't mean that you won't be able to find love or people won't love you for who you are autism is not i don't want to say this to be a bad but it's not a death sentence. It, yeah, very good. You know, I, so, yes. I love, I love what you said, Jason. That is so true. And sometimes online there are, you know, sites and places where they're saying like, oh, it's so terrible. These parents have to have the tragedy of autistic children. Well, it's not a tragedy. Um, and yes, it, it, it may be that not everybody who's autistic will find love and get married, but not everybody who's not autistic finds love and gets married either. That's not enough of a reason to say it'll never happen. Um, now they did a study about communication where they took a bunch of neurotypical people who are not autistic and put them in a room together and had them communicate about different things and then kind of scored how they did, were they good communicators? And they were good communicators. Then they took a bunch of autistic people and put them in a room with each other and did the exact same test and they were all good communicators. They scored fine on how well they communicate. Then they mixed the groups and they put the typical people with the autistic people and gave them the same communication tasks. And there was a huge communication breakdown. They had a lot of trouble communicating. And guess whose fault everyone assumed it was? It must be the autistic people because typical people know how to communicate. But it's not always the fault of the autistic person, obviously. Um, so if you are autistic, I would say seek out other autistic people. Not that that's the only people you need to date or be friends with. But you might find your person, uh, like if you have interest in something, uh, whether it's you know Star Trek or, I don't know, there, there's so many interests out there. And many autistic people have unusual interests. But there are other people that share those interests, no matter how unusual they are. And when you find them, then you'll know you found your people. 
And one of the problems is nowadays that everybody puts up with is judging. When you point at somebody and say, oh, look, you know, that person's this. I was always taught you point with one finger, you got three boys pointing back at you. Oh, very good. Yeah, that is true. So we should not be judging other people. It's a good point. Well, Wendy, um, this has been a very good podcast. I want to know from you if people want to follow you or get in touch with you. Are you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, any of them? Um, I am. Uh, the one I go to most often is Facebook. And my name on Facebook is Wendy Whitcomb Marsh. But my my I have two websites. One of them is WendellaWhitcombMarsh.com. And that has all my books. And the other one is adultautismassessment.com. And um, you probably have those in the information that I sent you before, you know, the media page. If you wanted to put those in, I would love to have people contact me and just tell me you heard me on Jason's show with a cup of coffee. Now, uh, one other thing, can you go over the books that you're writing again? And, oh, yeah. the new, and the new one coming out so you can kind of do a plug so people can actually get them oh. and read them if it's interesting. Thank you. I'd love to give a plug. The one that comes out December 5th, and it's on pre-order now, is called Parenting While Autistic. Um, there's a lot of books out there for parents who have autistic children, but there's there was nothing for when the parent is the the autistic one. So that's kind of a different perspective. So if you or someone you know is autistic and either a parent or thinking about having children, that would be great. The other books in that series, in the Adulting While Autistic series, are Independent Living While Autistic, Dating While Autistic, and Relating While Autistic. Those are all you know part of that same series. I also, there are some others, but one of my favorite books was called Recognizing Autism in Women and Girls, because it is, it looks different in women and they're often missed and misdiagnosed. And then the future book that I haven't even started writing yet, but I just got the okay from my publisher is going to be called Working While Autistic, because uh, there's a high unemployment rate among autistic people. They get misunderstood and they get fired when it was, you know, they had the best intentions and they were good at their job, but the social aspect sometimes gets people fired, which is a shame. So I'm going to write that book next. Are you going to look at 2024, 2025 for that one? Um, uh, Yeah, either late 24, um, it's up to the publishers. So I really don't know yet. I know that parenting comes out December 5th and then, um, I'm doing a rewrite on independent living with while autistic. Um, it was the first book in this series and now it's getting an upgrade, a second edition. And that one's coming out later on in, in 24. So yeah, working might be 24, 25. All right. Thank you so much, Wendy. Oh, thank you, Jason. This has been so much fun. It's great to meet you. <laughs>